Looking into yourself is defeating. We are, none of us are happy with where we're at. Looking away to Christ is always energizing. Welcome to this week's episode on the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. It's Jaden here. I hope that this year is off to a great start for you. I don't know about you, but our team is really looking forward to what's ahead in 2023. We are so grateful to have the opportunity for yet another year to gather with pastors, encourage pastors, come alongside you in the important work that you're doing to serve Jesus and your community. So thanks for joining us at the start of this new year for our second official episode, but our first official interview of 2023. Today, we have the joy of sharing our conversation with Ross Hastings. Let me tell you a little bit about him for those of you who might not know him. Ross is currently on the faculty of Regent College here in Vancouver, BC as a professor of theology, and it's impossible, and I mean it, impossible to fit Ross into one category. He is a Zimbabwean Scot who holds his PhDs in both organometallic chemistry as well as theology. He's a sports enthusiast, also with a real love for academia. So you'd be just as likely to find Ross at a rugby or cricket match as you would find him reading Karl Barth or Teresa of Avila. He has spent many years teaching as well as in the pastorate at a number of churches here in BC. And though Ross can speak with a real depth and thoughtfulness to tons of areas, including the interface between science and theology, Trinitarian theology, the spirituality of mission, much of his recent work revolves around theological and pastoral ethics and the church's integrity in a contemporary context. And I know that's a bit of a mouthful, but this was one of the primary reasons why we wanted to chat with Ross. Essentially, he has done incredible work seeking to understand the moral life of pastors and how in the busyness of church life, pastors can plot an ethical, virtuous, honorable course forward that is centered on the person of Jesus and on his gospel. And that's exactly what is discussed in this conversation. And one fun note about the conversation, joining Jason for the interview is Chris Price, teaching and care pastor at The Way Church. It's a blast anytime we get to bring out a third mic for an episode. So thank you, Chris, for joining us for this one. Now, before we jump in, here's a quick word from our friends at the Canadian Bible Society who helped make this episode possible. Then we'll go right in with Chris, Jason, and Ross. I want to thank our friends at the Canadian Bible Society who make this episode possible. We want to highlight a resource they developed called the Bible Course, a course that was created to help the average person engage with God's Word in a deeper way. The Bible Course includes eight weeks of video teaching that are all designed to connect the events, books, and characters of Scripture together into one big story. This course can easily be run in small groups and even as a great follow-up to something like Alpha if you're running that. To check out the first video for free and to learn more about the course, just head to biblesociety.ca slash thebiblecourse and you'll find all you need. That's biblesociety.ca slash thebiblecourse. Well, it is good to be together. Ross, Chris. Great to be here. So good. And uh, thanks, Jason. Thanks for making time to be with us. It's really special to have this conversation. You walked here. I did. You're yeah. a local. Uh, fairly local, yeah. Ah, so good. 16th and Granville. Come on. It's yeah. great to do this in person. Yeah, we're right downtown. Yeah. This is special to be in person because right. typically Absolutely. this thing was formed in the pandemic. And mm -hmm. so we got in the rhythm of doing Zoom. Makes it easier to interview people around the world. But right. Ross, you're at Regent College, yes, and uh, which is a really great theological institution not far from where we're recording today. Yeah. I'm curious about your educational journey really yeah. quickly here. I'm glad you brought this You've up, You've got, Chris. thank you. You've got <laughs> multiple PhDs. And it's fascinating that divergent fields. And so maybe just give us a quick rundown of that. Yeah, so I grew up in a denomination that didn't have room for pastors. Uh, but I think I had a pastoral call upon me probably from the time I was 14. Mm -hmm. But what I did is I pursued uh, what I was good at at university. And uh, so I came to Canada uh, in the early 80s to do a PhD in organometallic chemistry. Um, but by the time that degree was over, I confirmed, I had a sense of confirmation I was called to the pastorate. So I came to Regent College as a student at that point. Hmm. And um, and then much uh, later, I was a pastor for 20 years. And in, in the midst of my last pastorate, my church gave me a very gracious gift. They allowed me to go and study 
three months each year for four years at St. Andrews, and I was able to get my PhD in, in systematic theology. Wow, so PhD in chemistry and in systematic yeah. theology. So one of the things I write on is the theology-science interface. Right. I've written a book called Echoes of Coherence, and uh, we've had some grants from Templeton at Regent for uh, studying the interface between theology and science. Mm, cool. Um, so it's... it's uh, I. I don't find any barriers between them. Um, whereas, you know, you talk to the general person in the, the street, they'll say, wow, that's crazy. How, you know, chemistry and theology, those things don't go together for me at all. Mm. Um, but the interesting thing is how you know in theology, how you know what you know in science is quite similar. Mm. Wow. Um, critical realism, really. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I've noticed just in your bio but then also in how i hear you communicate and your ministry life there seems to be this really one foot in the life of the local church grounded right. incarnated community pastoral work and then right. one foot in academia right. how's that journey been for you as you've sort of straddled those two worlds which are compatible but also not always feel uh, at harmony yeah um you know throughout my Time as a pastor, I always had theological education in my mind. And, and the last two churches I served, we ran a kind of mini Bible college. One was in Montreal, where there was very little theological education at that time. So I ran a kind of mini Bible school, got mm. credit, credit through Briarcrest, and uh, taught there. And the same when I went to Peace Portal Alliance Church in White Rock, uh, we had a little sort of mini mini Bible college. And because I was always concerned for uh, people to grow both in their... Um, how to, how to study the Word of God, and also with respect to, to Christian theology and giving them a basic grounding. I didn't ever really intend to be a professor at Regent. It just kind of happened mm -hmm. um, that after my second PhD, I kind of had the sense that I've been blessed by God in significant ways to have these two degrees, um, and how could I best use that for this generation? Mm. And it was in the context, that context that a, a position became available at Regent. And um, yeah, so mm. I teach theology and uh, pastoral theology at Regent now. Yeah. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about your pastoral journey? Because I know you've been in different churches. Yes. And different, uh, very different cities, mm -hmm. very different size churches. Yeah. I'd just love to hear a bit about the topography of your pastoral journey. Yeah, I like to think I can relate to... Um, pastors of a small church, a medium-sized church, and a large church, Right, because <laughs> I've been in all three. So my first church was Westminster Chapel in Burnaby. Which my grandma and grandpa I went to. Them. And that was the first Do time we met was at a Westminster Bible Chapel men's breakfast you when met? I was 15. Are you kidding me, Jason? Yeah. That's amazing. When he was a youth. Yeah. And I remember I asked you a theological question. Is that right? Because my grandpa would, my grandpa yes. Dave. Yes. Um, said, this guy really understands the Bible. And my own faith had just come alive. Right. But I had all these very sincere questions. And yeah. so I remember leaning over to you, and it was probably not the right space for it, but I asked something about reconciling the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Oh, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Who I do believe is the same God. But yes. At, at a, you know, a cursory reading of scripture, I found myself asking, yeah. anyways. As a 16-year-old, yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is another topic for another time. I'm fascinated to know what I actually said. But anyways. Yeah. <laughs> So Westminster Bible yeah. Chapel. Yeah, sorry, so it was a church of about 80 that grew to around 200 when I was there. And then I went to Montreal and I was in a church of about 500. Um, wow. I, I don't, by sound, I don't sound like it's all a big success story. There were lots of pain in the middle of all this. But that church grew from 500 to 1,000 in three years. Hmm. Um, but we left after a while and uh, we came back to Peace Portal, which was maybe up 900. It grew to around 3,000 when we were there. Was it, the church mm -hmm. in Montreal... Brethren, it was Brethren Roots Congregation, okay, kind of a progressive brethren. Um, some would say that's an oxymoron, but yeah. um, mm -hmm. it was Progressive Brethren Church, uh, a little bit like Granville and in its, in mm -hmm. its Granville Chapel and its in its um, kind of ethos, and uh, wonderful times there. Uh, had a powerful sense of renewal in that church in Montreal that I'd never experienced before. The power of the Holy Spirit present to His people was just amazing. Um, and then to Peace Portal, uh, which was my the church that gave me this gift of uh, being able to study at uh, St. Andrews. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the uh, the dynamics, some of the dynamics are different for different sized churches, but I think the, the core, the same core, you know, applies in, uh, in, in, every, in every case that we live into the life of God. Um, and uh, we ask, we, we try to walk with Christ contemplatively and in communion with him, um, 
the goal is not so much growth, the goal is health, mm. and growth often comes from health. Yeah. And so we were blessed to be in those three situations where I learned lots of lessons in different ways, but mm -hmm. God was good. Yeah. So at some point you transitioned into pastoral ministry after yeah. what seemed like a career in chemistry, or that was your trajectory. Right. Um, and you pastored bigger churches, smaller churches. I'm curious about some of the the challenges you experienced as a pastor through that journey. Yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, this really moves to the core of this book that we're talking about, Pastoral Ethics. The most important aspect, I think, of pastoral ethics is the person of the pastor. Mm. People might say the character of the pastor, but I think the character flows from personhood mm. in participation with Christ. Um, and I, uh, you know, I think one of the most challenging things about pastoral ministry is actually ourselves. You know, it's our own uh, particular... Uh, drivenness, some of the wounds of our lives. Um, you know, the steady stream of pastors falling ethically was one of the reasons I wrote this book. Mm -hmm. And a staggering statistic that um, only 15% of people who begin in pastoral ministry actually end their lives in pastoral ministry. Incredible fallout. Mm -hmm. And so what's the reason for that? Um, and I think there, there's mental health reasons. There's uh, sexual, um, inappropriate sexual behavior, domineering leadership styles or weak leadership. Sometimes it's financial deprivation. Um, all kinds of reasons why people people leave. And, and coupled with that, I think, is the incredibly challenging state of the church in Canada. Um, I mean, you folks are very privileged to, to know what it is to be in a church that's growing. And I'm so excited about what God is doing at the way. But most churches in Canada are not growing. They're, in fact, dying. Um, and in the West, uh, the church is diminishing, whereas in the South and the East, the church is growing. So we, we, are, we are in a, we're a very missional state. Yeah. And so um, one of the greatest, I think, challenges of our time is to find pastors who will uh, be human, who mm. will be persons. And mm. um, that, for me, was the biggest struggle of my, of my pastoral life. Um, I had a serious clinical depression in my first ministry. Um, and it, 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 there were lots of dynamics to that. Um, I had to work through issues with my father. I, I went to boarding school at the age of six. I had lots of pain and anger associated with that that I didn't realize was driving me. Um, I was really, I would say, relationally and emotionally illiterate. Hmm. So I had lots of brain, lots of sort of cognitive knowledge, right. but very little emotional intelligence, very little relational capacity. And my first wife, Sharon, uh, I, 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 such, such a wonderful wife, I, have, I lost her to cancer, um, mm. which was, was a great, a great um, brokenness in my life. Mm -hmm. um, but during that time, she reached a point where she couldn't support me anymore because mm. all the affirmation she gave me, I didn't believe. Wow. And, um, and so when I say personhood is at the core of pastoral ethics, I could have been one of those statistics. Yeah. I could have been one of those people that didn't make it to the end. Um, and I think the primary reason for that was um, I just hadn't realized um, some of the forces, subterranean forces, if you like, at, at work in my own soul. For example, I love to preach, um, but I struggled to shake hands with people at the door hmm. or mingle with them right. um, because I had too many insecurities of my own yeah. to enter into their insecurities. And it was only, you know, I look back now on that experience of depression. The psychiatrist who was helping me through that, she said, one day I showed up with a packet, which was an invitation to pastor a large church in Calgary. And I said, well, what am I doing receiving invitations like this? I'm disqualified from being a pastor because I'm depressed. Mm. She was a very wise um, Anglo-Catholic um, nun who was a psychiatrist, Judith McBride. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, Ross, your greatest ministry is going to flow out of your greatest brokenness. Mm. not your greatest strengths. Mm -hmm. And that was a crucial moment for me. And so I went through some significant healing uh, in that time. I had another occasion where God ministered to me powerfully. So God worked through her as a psychiatrist, but mm -hmm. God also dealt with me. I'll never forget this one, uh, one evening, a Monday evening. I'd preached on Sunday, and those of you who preach know what it's like to, you know, Mondays after Sundays. Mondays are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> I used to write my resignation letter every Monday. Yeah. Um, uh, and so 
uh, my wife, uh, Sharon, at the time, she, she developed hepatitis A, and we had two young kids who were you know, probably like six and four, something like that. So I was looking after the kids all day. Um, I didn't let the church know that I was going through a depression because I didn't really trust that they might understand that. And that's right. probably my issue as much right. as their issues. Later on, I've talked openly about my depression with the other you know, churches I served and how God has been gracious to me in it. Because in, in all honesty, if I'd not been through a depression, I would never have made a pastor. Mm-hmm. I, was a pre- I was a teacher, but I wasn't a pastor. Wow. Okay. Until I went through that, you know. How would you make that distinction? Working, um, I know there's, there's a lot of overlap. By teacher, I kind of mean you're, you're, you're sort of person who loves to teach theology, loves yeah. to teach the Word of God, expository, etc., but has no capacity to touch the lives of the people of God personally, mm-hmm. you know, to sort of help them work through their depressions, through their marital issues, um, you know, all the, you know, through all the, the tough sexual issues that are going on in our time, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, uh, yeah, so I became a pastor teacher, which I think is the way Paul puts that together in, in Ephesians chapter four, as mm-hmm. a result of going through all this pain. But on this one occasion, on this Monday, I'm about to, uh, I, I need to go get, get groceries at the end of the day. And I was kind of angry. I was dealing with a lot of anger right. about my past. And I went through the red lights. I went to the red, I didn't, no, I didn't go through the red lights, but <laughs> when, I, when the light turned red, I was mad because I, I needed to be in a hurry. Got to the Save on Foods and I thought the lady... Um, dealing with the, um, the 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 lady at the till was very slow, and I'm going. <clears throat> um, <laughs> anger was bubbling out of me yeah. um, that I'd had stuff down for a long time in my life. Went into the car, put the groceries in the back, and then um, I noticed that there was this is way this is way back. There was cassette tape. It was an old cassette tape in the seat next to me, and I honestly looked at it. it was Christian music. Um, there was a worship leader from Gordon College called Richard Allen Farmer. I'd heard him lead worship at a conference. And my first instinct was the last thing I want to listen to right now is worship music. Mm-hmm. And, and then all of a sudden I reached over and I put it in. And there was a hymn that he was singing that he had jazzed up. But the words, the words were powerfully used by the Spirit to touch my soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, loved with everlasting love, led by grace that love to know. Like I had not had my usual seven chapters of day of the Bible, which I used to read in those days. I had, I had, I had not earned the blessing of God. Mm. And all of a sudden this hymn absolutely rocked me. Wow. Um, love to the everlasting love, led by grace that love to know. Spirit breathing from above, you have taught me it is so. Oh, what full and perfect peace. Oh, what rapture all divine. In a love which cannot cease, I am his and he is mine. Mm. Wow. And it was, and it was a, the, the triune God was telling me, I, I've been there for you throughout your whole life, even those, those days when you were six years of age. I was there for you. I've watched over your life, and you're in me, and I'm in you. And um, I started, for the first time in my adult life, I cried. Mm. Tears streamed down my face. And it was just as if God was bathing me in his love. And this was real experiential love. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, um, it wasn't, as much theological as it was, it was real for me that night. And I got home and my wife said to me, what's wrong? I said, nothing's wrong. I said, I've never been so right. (laughs) (laughs) And it didn't cure the depression overnight, but it was one of those lovely visitations by which God began to heal me. Um, And I I think when, that was an example, the way in which we participate in the life of God, I think is absolutely core to everything that we do as pastors, including the ethical life. Mm -hmm. I don't wake up in the morning saying, I want to lead an ethical life today. You know, I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, ethics outside of participation in Christ is legalism. It's death. Mm. It was the, that, that was what Adam and Eve wanted to do, to mm. know right and wrong outside of relationship with God. Yeah. But inside relationship with God, in communion with him, in contemplation of him, then we, we discover ethics not as I ought to, but as I get to. Mm-hmm. Um, just like the Ten Commandments begin, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And the Ten Commandments, which still apply today, by the way, mm-hmm. that's another, another, another part of the, of the book. Um, I just want to say that um, it's, it's the fact that God has committed himself unconditionally to covenant love with you and I. That's the reason why um, ethics, um, ethics flows from that mm-hmm. uh, and, from, and including character and then um, ethical decision-making. 
Right. But it all begins with um, with personhood, life in God, participation in Christ, and practices that enable us to live into that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the core of the of the Christian life and the pastoral life. Mm-hmm. I want to. I think it's appropriate to shift into. I want to lean into some of the themes and ideas in in your most recent book, Pastoral Ethics. And uh, I was really personally impacted um, by this statement. I'm going to read it. Um, it's a couple of things I want to read, but just early on. You're describing your journey in pastoral ministry, and um, you say, um, I had zero training in pastoral ethics in my theological degree. I also dreaded hearing about the next victim of moral failure in my denomination or circle of pastoral friends. I suspect I'm not alone. Pastors today, I thought this was really accurate what you said, pastors today are often adept at strategic thinking, worship planning, expository preaching, but weak when it comes to the cultivation of personal holiness and the ability to make just and ethical decisions. Pastors can often pass the preaching test and the pastoral care test, but miserably fail the moral and ethical test in ministry. And this is the most serious, the test that when failed sometimes means the end of a ministry. And you introduced a term that felt really new to me, which is just moral formation. Moral formation, yeah. And I just, maybe just as a way in, can you sort of define the terms that we're working with here and, and the themes that we're working with? What, what do we mean when we say pastoral ethics or the moral yeah. formation of the leader pastor? That's mm-hmm. great. That's great. Yeah. Um, we tend to think very much of spiritual formation. That's kind of the big blanket term, but moral formation is very much part of spiritual formation. Um, it's interesting that the writer to the Hebrews in chapter five defines maturity in a strange way for our thinking, I think. He says, maturity is, is not your theological knowledge. Uh, it's not even your awareness of the high priesthood of Christ in that book, wonderful though that is. It's discerning between right and wrong. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the acid test on the ground. Um, so moral formation is part of spiritual formation. Um, and moral formation is one branch of ethics, one could say. So we tend to think about ethics under maybe three headings. Number one, theological ethics. Theological ethics is how you think theologically. What's the basis for um, your thinking about theological ethics? And so for me, life in the Trinity, uh, Trinitarian ethics for me is the most important piece of that big picture thing mm-hmm. of um, theological ethics. And so, for example, pe- people talk about deontological ethics, consequentialist ethics, and virtue ethics. So deontological ethics is simply, um, deon means rule. Ethics according to rules, something's either right or wrong. Right. And that comes from Immanuel Kant and other uh, ethicists of the past. Um, consequentialist ethics says it's not so much about whether what's right and wrong, but what are the consequences? It's kind of... Um, what's the best decision for the most people. You know, the downside of consequentialist ethics was that Hitler used it to eliminate the Jewish people. Terrible misuse of consequentialist consequentialist ethics. Um, And then thirdly, virtue ethics says, don't worry so much about rules, don't worry so much about the ends and the means, which is consequentialist ethics, but worry about character. And so... um, People who, who are uh, into theological ethics are people like Stanley Harawas, for example, for whom virtue ethics is really important, character ethics. Um, and I'm all for character ethics. Don't get me wrong. Um, character is vital. But I think it, it's a category below person-centered ethics. Hmm. Can't develop character apart from uh, being persons in relation, which is the very core of what it means to be in the image of God. And as we are persons in relation with the triune God, we are transformed. Um, Virtue is a product of that. It's kind of one of my favorite texts in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being changed. Mm. So yes, the telos is being changed, but the way there is beholding. Wow. It's a Godward, Christward focus. It's the enabling of the Spirit. So that's the first category, yeah. theological ethics. Second is moral formation. Moral formation is um, how theological ethics speaks of how we're formed. And it is, it's about personhood and character. And then thirdly is the area of ethical decision-making. Right. 
which is kind of on the ground. Yes. You know, for every pastor listening in, I guarantee that almost every day, maybe five times a day, you make an ethical decision without even realizing you're making mm. an ethical decision. How will you do that? It's scary. Yeah. Unless at the at the top level, you are in communion with the triune God every day, seeking deeper communion with him, contemplating Christ. That's number one. And number two, um, as you do that, you are being formed. And uh, as you're being formed, in a sense, you don't have to worry too much about all those ethical decisions because I think... Um, I think that he will, you know, the triune God, uh, your life in Christ will empower you. Your life in the spirit will guide you. Um, those are those are the important things. And, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure at this point. Do you want me to talk about the sort of well, a summer, summary of how that works? I'm curious or, about yes, this. Yeah. You mentioned in another conversation we had, you talked about Karl Barth, and you said he had this line, I'm paraphrasing, but the line was something like, you don't know what uh, yeah. to do in an ethical situation until you're in it. Yeah. And it has resonance with me in regard to what you said about, you know, ethical decision-making on the ground. Yeah. So if that's the case, uh, if... Karl Barth is right, and we don't really know what to do in an ethical situation until we're in it. Yeah. And of course, in that moment, the person we are in relationship with God is very crucial. Yeah. What kind of grid could you give, you know, pastors for? Yeah. Excuse me for ethical decision making yeah. on the ground. That's great. I mean, this is really the core of the book I've written, and in this conversation, we can't obviously cover too many details, but I, I wanted to just give this little grid which I found helpful myself yeah. mm -hmm. uh, in my life with God and in the ethical life in particular. Um, the first thing I would say is we need to hear, so, so right, Karl Barth is so right. You cannot know in advance. Because, why can't you know in advance? Because things are complicated. Right. I mean, the word of God speaks to us clearly about some things, and then there are other things where it's kind of gray. Mm -hmm. um, and there may be a particular scripture, however, that God wants to bring to your mind. So, so I've, I've, I've always found the first thing is, um, because I'm in covenant relationship with the triune God, we get to hear the word of God from outside of ourselves. Um, it's not all about what's in me. So in every ethical situation, listen for the word of God hmm. from outside of yourself, um, which is the way Bart used to speak about um, uh, his, uh, his, his view of ethics, which is very much centered on the word of God, not only at the word of God written, but encountering the word of God living. Mm -hmm. um, the living word of God uh, speaks through the written word of God. And so um, that's vital for our formation, but it's also vital, I think, in our decision-making. Mm. One of the habits that God enabled me to have very, very young, just like you were young, asking me theological questions at 16, at the age of 14, I decided to read the Bible through every year mm. wow. in response to something my dad gave me. And I did that until my, until my early 30s. Now I can't do it. I just can't take in that amount. Of, but then it was hugely formative for me. When I'm asked a theological question, there's a, there's a little thing going on, like my little computer brain, that somehow spits out a passage that relates to that. And I think the same is true when you're dealing with ethical situations, is um, we need to hear the Word of God from outside of ourselves by being saturated in it and here's where, by the way, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not the only ethical material in the Bible, but I believe they're the core. Mm. Every one of them is repeated in the New Testament. And by the power of the Spirit, the righteousness of God is made within us. Um, and so, and John Calvin had a lovely way of dealing with the Ten Commandments. He, it's called synecdoche. It's very, I know, very... Um, technical word synecdoche just means that whatever god says negatively he means positively mm -hmm. so for example you shall not commit adultery well we all get that um of course that needs to be worked out into the whole of the bible and and, and all of the sexual issues that we're dealing with in our time relate to that first commandment but then what's the positive yeah love your spouse if you're married um with everything you've got mm. Um, that's the positive side of the commandment. So Calvin takes every one of the commandments and he makes, if they're stated negatively, he says, it's obvious that we're meant to look at what's the positive in this mm. um, and uh, and so on. So 
uh, yeah, hearing the word of God from outside of ourselves, and I, you know, I don't want to say more about that because there's a lot about that in the book. Actually, I've structured the book according to the Ten Commandments. Um, my old ethics teacher, Klaus Bachmiel, always used to say the Ten Commandments are like area codes for ethics. Mm. Um, almost any, any ethical issue that you're dealing with comes under one of those area codes. Hmm. Oh, so cool. I've just mentioned one is the, you know. And then some live at the border of two. There's what? Some live at the border of two area codes. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. true. That's yeah. so true. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, secondly, um, as, as someone in covenant personal relationship with God, we cultivate virtue inside of ourselves by the Spirit's work within us. Notice I've used double agency here. I work and he works. Mm-hmm. Um, Karl Barth used to call that concursus. Um, Daryl was referring to that in his sermon on Sunday morning. He didn't use that word, but um, Philippians chapter 2, uh, work out your own salvation and fear and trembling, for it is God who's at work in you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we work towards virtue, no doubt about it. Second Peter chapter 1 says, um, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, goodness, knowledge. So we're involved. Mm-hmm. Our agency is involved. But our agency is only effective in his agency mm-hmm. as we partake participate in the divine nature as second peter chapter one says so um, divine power is released to us through this participation um so worry about character but don't worry too much it's mm-hmm. being formed in you as you look away to christ mm-hmm. looking into yourself is defeating we are none of us are happy with where we're at mm-hmm. looking away to christ is always energizing and enervating and he will form that the third thing, and this specifically relates to what Bart said about you don't know in advance what your decision is going to be because of the complexity of ethics. Um, but you can listen, thirdly, for the voice of the Holy Spirit within yourself. Mm. So there's the Word of God outside of ourselves that comes to us, the work of the Spirit within ourselves, cultivating virtue and character. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit who actually speaks. Um, our God is a God who speaks to us. Um, I think some of us might have the tendency just to want to emphasize the spirit part and leave the word part. Word and spirit together Mm -hmm. are needed, I think. And then fourthly, there are five, I'm almost almost down here. As those in covenant relationship with God, we are also in community with its people. And we need to consult, consult, Mm. consult. See, part of a Trinitarian worldview is that the church is God's community that reflects, it's kind of the icon of the Trinity, and around you as a pastor, you have all kinds of wise people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's arrogance to assume that you know the answer to every, um, every, every kind of ethical issue that comes your way. I'll give you an example of this. I was sitting in my office uh, one day, and I had a couple call me to say that they just discovered kind of late that their baby was anencephalic. First of all, I want to know, what's anencephalic? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anencephalic means it doesn't have a brain. Mm. It's oh. very tragic. It happens oh. occasionally. And they had come to almost full term. And mm. they're serious Christians. They don't want to abort, yeah. even though it doesn't have a brain. And to all intents and purposes, it's not, it's not alive in that sense. And so who am I? How do I know these things? Yeah. It's the first thing I do. And I encourage this in the book. Every pastor should know a a medical doctor well, a medical doctor who loves Jesus and uh, knows a bit about ethics would be great. Um, You should know a lawyer well, and you should know some therapists well. Cultivate this community around you. So what happened in this case is I called one of my best friends who was an Irish doctor from Kingston, Ontario. I said, what do I do? What what am I to tell this couple? And he said... Yes, I've encountered this before. He says, the best thing you can do is encourage them to bring it to term, to to actually have the baby, and it will die within a few hours. But the act of birth and then the holding of that baby as it dies is probably the um, uh, the most significant way for them to experience their grief. Um. You know, rather than just aborting it. Mm-hmm. And of course, that was his opinion. That's, and I know there are other opinions, but for this couple, it seemed to work mm-hmm. well. And, and you as a pastor, I often say in pastoral care class, the most important word in pastoral care is presence. Mm-hmm. Just be there. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have wise words to say. Mm-hmm. You just need to be there. Hold their hand, put your arm around them. 
And as they go through this process, if they want you with them, be there. Um, so that's just an example of what it means to do ethics in community mm. uh, because there are people who know things. They know stuff. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, I, I then, really love the idea of cultivating a team yeah, as a pastor yes. in advance yes, exactly. of these situations arising. This yeah. weekend we were dealing with a mental health issue in the right. context of somebody who was... Um, I mean, it was really, it was really tragic and also very disruptive. And God's grace to us was somebody in our congregation who is um, a psychiatric nurse wow. with a hugely compassionate heart, thoughtful. Brilliant. Yeah. And uh, her engagement in it uh, completely changed our experience of handling the problem. Yeah. Um, and uh, being able to serve the person with as much love and thoughtfulness as we could while also serving the congregation and trying to protect them. Beautiful. And yeah. I also found that the invitation for her to be involved was honoring to her right. and her expertise and very life-giving yeah. for her. Yeah, and indeed. you can imagine as you bring lawyers or nurses or legal, legal professionals into these conversations, how it does honor their unique mm -hmm. wisdom and expertise yeah, absolutely. Uh, in your congregation? I mean, the whole area of mental health and the integration of psychology and theology is a big area. Mm -hmm. um, it's, I, I found it really important to, to know um, some therapists that I, I knew what their undergirding um, way of thinking about that was. And so that was very helpful mm -hmm. because pastors, pastors are not equipped. I want to say this carefully. We're mostly not equipped yeah. to deal with depression in a long, ongoing way. And if we deal with it badly, we could, uh, you know, we can deal with it unethically as in telling people to pull their bootstraps, bootstraps at their right. bootstraps up mm -hmm. or um, telling them to get over it. Or, you know, uh, some of these classic cases of where pastors have been sued because people committed suicide. Mm. The pastor had no clue how to deal with depression. Mm -hmm. The last thing you want to tell a person who's clinically depressed is to pull themselves up by the bootstraps because they can't. Mm -hmm. And uh, so a referral, a referral, but it's not like you refer to the therapist and all of a sudden they're out there and you're away distant. I think your job as a pastor is to walk alongside them and ask them how they're encountering God in the midst of this process. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. that's, you, that's your role. It's kind of a more that's reflective good. role. So yeah, just one, one example. The last one is pay attention to your own personhood. This is kind of the core of the book. Um, and I say paradoxically by looking away from yourself to Christ. Hmm. Um, you know, I think it was the great Scottish pastor um, who uh, who said, oh, I've forgotten his name. Um, here we go. Uh, <laughs> who said, for every one look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Hmm. Um, that contemplative, I think it was Robert Murray Michelin, actually, um, or Horatius Bonar, one of the two. But they, they, they both uh, said wonderful things. It doesn't really matter who said it, but it's, it's just true. Yeah. Uh, for every one, one look you take at yourself, you do need to take a look at yourself and do an inventory, particularly um, if you're married or, or you have a best friend, you know, ask them how you're doing mm. um, with regard to all your growth in Christ. But... Um, Ultimately, it's about sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing his word, being transformed. Um, we're all on that journey. And frankly, I can't wait for the day when I see Christ face to face. And there will be that wonderful um, beatific vision mm -hmm. where we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Uh, that's the, the now. That's the not yet. But the now is we struggle. Mm. And um, we... Uh, constantly need to be living into the life of Christ in death and resurrection. We could say one word about practices. Every, spirit, every pastor needs practices. See, practices, again, apart from participation with Christ, can become legal. But they can be evangelical rather than legal. By the word evangelical, I mean of the gospel. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, ethics can be legal rather than evangelical. If they're evangelical, they flow from the gospel. They flow from what's been done for us and what Christ is doing in us. Um, and the same with spirituality, spiritual practices that form us. Um, you know, things like uh, hearing the word of God ourselves, um, public prayer, 
the Lord's Supper. Those, those, we often, when we think spiritual practices, we go to kind of individual practices. Right. But the New Testament doesn't even speak about individual practices. You know, the only, only uh, as far as I can remember right now, the only time any kind of hint of spiritual practices arises is when Paul tells Timothy to study the word. Hmm. Um, and prayer is assumed. But there's nothing about silence, solitude. All, all I'm trying to say is that um, our spiritual practices must be ways of living into our union with Christ. Hmm. Not a way to gain brownie points. They're not achievement-related and so if I think about the, 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 there, are, there are public disciplines, public spiritual practices, um, I, I, I know that right now there might be some pastors who are in the country and they're the only pastor and nobody else, nobody else preaches for them and that's very tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that case, it would be good to probably get some podcasts or hear some other preaching because all of us, why do we think as pastors that we don't need to hear preaching, mm-hmm. that we can only give it? Um, one of my favorite mentors um, going way back to the days when I was at Dallas Theological Seminary was Howard Hendricks, who always used to say, just because you're a pastor does not excuse you from being a Christian. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about spiritual practices. Why would you imagine that you don't need to be at worship? You don't need to be taking the Eucharist, receiving it from somebody else, um, hearing the word of God. So that's number one. And number two, there are these spiritual practices that arose within the history of the church, like silence, solitude, Sabbath. Um, they're all... Um, wonderful ways of um, nourishing your communion with Christ mm. that are transformative for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Can I, and I do appreciate how much this is all part of the moral formation, which is even a part of the the grid you gave, the five different things. Yeah. Uh, when approaching an ethical situation, I'm curious about, let's say you apply the grid. It's a messy situation. Yeah. And you're reflecting on it afterward. And there's doubt that creeps in or insecurity that creeps in. Like, how do you tell? Maybe you can't. But how do you tell as a pastor if you've done a good job or not yeah. on the other side of it? Let me let me interrupt really quick because I want to illustrate. Because I think, I think that people will feel this more than they even know. Yeah. You do this great list that gave me comfort and anxiety at the same time in the introduction to your book. You just kind of itemize some of the types of ethical situations we face what are you to do when you discover that an elder in your church is having an affair yeah. what are you to do when a teenage girl confides she had an abortion doesn't want her parents to know what are you to do when a person wants to have a sex change operation how is the money in your church managed with integrity that builds the confidence in your congregation to give generously how is the money spent in your congregation does this reflect justice and care for the poor when two families get into a conflict related to their business what are the guidelines for conflict resolution what does confidentiality mean for a pastor what does confidentiality need to be broken should pastors counsel with persons of the opposite sex what happens when a pastor betrays the trust of a congregation etc 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 and uh, these are the types of things we face and more yeah and uh, i think what chris is yeah. asking is helpful because like sometimes you do your best and you walk away and there's no resolve. Yeah. Sometimes there's severed relationships. Sometimes you feel like, how, yeah, how do you walk away from that? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. And, and I'm glad you asked it because it does sound like almost an impossible task. And I'm going to say this flat out. You're going to fail. Mm-hmm. Maybe every day. <laughs> you know? um, and, and, that's why, and that's why we are constantly coming again and again in confession before the Lord and bef- and we are, and we know that we are forgiven and that we are um, in the midst of that being transformed by Christ. So uh, expect that you will not get it right every time. Mm-hmm. But there, nevertheless, there are some things to say. If you have, you feel like you've prayed into it, and here's a crucial one, that you've drawn a team around you if it's a really tough issue. Mm-hmm. I think that that piece is absolutely crucial. We are not meant to be individuals. Individuals, in my opinion, is the worst word of the English language. We are persons. Mm. Persons in relation, not individuals. And if you as a pastor feel like you're an individual, you've got to do everything, um, you, you, you will burn out. Mm. And you'll make some bad decisions. And guess what? You've got nothing to fall back on because you didn't consult with anybody. Mm-hmm. When I teach this course on pastoral ethics, um, those three words, I say, that's the mantra for this course. Consult, consult, consult. Mm. Because if, at least if you get it wrong, you got it wrong with the community. Right, right. That's one thing. 
But then, of course, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'm not in any way, um, yeah, I, I just believe that with all my heart. That's really important. So your life with God has been, you know, you, you're, you're, you've entered into it in prayer. You've sought to hear the word of God from outside of yourself. You've sought to listen to the voice of the Spirit within you, the voice of the community around you. Um, you do your best, and at the end of the day, none of us is perfect. We are in the now, but not yet, well short of perfection. So on the one hand, give yourself a break. Mm. You know, um, Luther's obsession with justification is, I think, sometimes really helpful. I mean, Calvin writes to correct Luther's obsession with justification by telling him that there's also a second grace that flows out of union with Christ, which is called sanctification. And right. Luther was not so big on that. But um, although, you know, uh, there's an early and there's a late Luther. Uh, there's, there's, and anyway, my, my, my point is um, one does need to rejoice in the fact that you are in Christ. And in Christ, God has pronounced over you, not guilty, mm. righteous. Live into that. And that actually motivates and pursues your sanctification with all its faults and your, and your life of ethical decision-making, which is always imperfect. Mm. So... Sometimes we fail because we're irresponsible. That's not excusable. Mm -hmm. um, although God does forgive that too, and we hope that our congregations will forgive that and we'll get another chance. Right. Um, but when we've been responsible, including consulting well, then you may, may, may have made the wrong call. Who knows what, what the wrong call really is? Mm -hmm. You know, It may look like a family explodes because you give advice or something. Um, but who knows what happens in five years' time. Maybe it was the right decision. Mm. There was some tough love needed to be done. I, I, who knows what the right decision yeah, is. It almost feels like sometimes failure could be an arbitrary label you slap mm -hmm. on the situation yeah. before the story's over. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hmm. Yes, I mean, just to say, uh, when I lost my first wife... Um, my psychiatrist, the psychiatrist that dealt with me in the midst of my depression, she, I was usually a bit concerned about how I was going to cope with the loss of my wife. And, and, and who knows how to cope with the loss of a wife? You, you, you know, it's, it's an ongoing thing. Mm -hmm. um, but she did say these words that I've never forgotten, be gentle with yourself. Mm. Because she knows I'm a driver. I want this grief to be over, and I want to get on with life. Um, I want to use that in a broader sense for your whole life as a pastor. Be kind to yourself. Be gentle to yourself. Um, if God loves you that much, um, I, I, you know, I think that, um, you know, our sense of self is, um, you know, is quite important. Uh, not to be obsessed with ourselves, but I think um, having a healthy sense of self that comes from um, who God says you are. I often think of a maybe a Trinitarian kind of sense of self-worth, a father who loves you so much he gave his son for you, a son who died on a cross, who humbled himself to become one with us that we might become one with him that involved going all the way to the cross, and a spirit who loves us so much that he's regenerated us and filled us and given us amazing gifts, charisms, mm -hmm. um, when I don't love myself appropriately, I'm actually flying in the face of the love of God. And I think one of the, one of the challenges for pastors is to actually have that proper sense. And I don't say that glibly because I've struggled most of my life. I think we kind of think of self-hatred as, as a virtue. Mm -hmm. Self-hatred is not a virtue. Mm -hmm. Hatred of my selfishness is a virtue. Hatred of my sin is a virtue. Hatred of myself is throwing the gift of yourself that God has given back in his face. Hmm. And I think it's so important that uh, it goes back to personhood here as the kind of the core. Yeah, it's helpful. I wonder, could I, you might have a question. Marina, Chris, I, I couldn't be more glad that you're here. You do whatever you want, man. Yeah, I'm going to follow my heart. Yeah, I think that's what I, that's the moral I'm gonna of the story. I'm going to follow right? the new heart that the Lord has given me. <laughs> with, and, with consults. Go yeah, for it, Chris. Yeah, with Um <laughs> There's a lot of pastors across the nation listening. You are someone who's had a lot of experience in pastoral ministry. We've established that big church, small church, and also experience in academia. And so you've surveyed your training pastors. If there was one word 
burning on your heart for pastors in the nation right now? Maybe it's more than one word, uh, but what would you want to share with them? What would you want them to hear from your heart to theirs? The one word would be participation in the life of God. Participation is the word, but participation has a lot of meanings. Participation is a deep theological term that goes back all the way to the church fathers. It's kind of it's kind of synonymous with union. Mm. We tend to think of our salvation and our experience as Christians in forensic terms. I was a sinner. Christ died for my sins. I repent of my sins and I am saved. I am justified before God. What's missing in that? Ontology, being. God's first thought is not forensic. God's first thought is filial, F-I-L-I-A-L. That is familial. It's to do with who you are. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God wanted you to be his son from all eternity. Mm-hmm. And yes, on the way to making us adopted as sons, there is the forensic matter of dealing with our sins. But um, the word, the most important, you know, we tend to think, say, say for example, we think of the theology of John Calvin. Everybody would say justification by faith. That's John Calvin. You'd be wrong. Hmm. It is important to him. The most important words in Calvin's theology are union with Christ. Hmm. The unio Christi is the Latin term from which flow the duplex gratia, the two graces of justification and sanctification. And those have forensic connotations, right? But union with Christ is our being regenerated, being brought into sonship and daughterhood in Christ. And, and from that flows a life of union with Christ Um, participation is in the life of the triune God. We are in Christ. The Spirit is in us. We are in the life of the Father. Um, The most important thing I can say about Christian life and therefore about pastoral life is Mm. participate in the life of God. It's the key to everything. I love that. It keeps ethics from being legal and makes it evangelical. Mm. By evangelical, I don't mean the evangelicals. Mm-hmm. I mean, of the gospel. Mm. It keeps it of the gospel. Wow. And it enables character to flow from being persons. Um, so, you know, when it, summar, summarizing this book, it, it's about three Ps, which are always good to preach three Ps. Can't go wrong. Most <laughs> yeah. of Irish preachers where I grew up and the brethren, they would all talk about, oh, we bought three Ps for our pea shooter today. <laughs> <laughs> persons participation and practices mm. um, those are those are the kind of the key things that are the core of virtue and then decision making beautiful yeah um, if you could sit down with a much younger Ross Hastings early in ministry right you grab him by the lapels or whatever what is it you most want him to hear mm-hmm That you're loved by God. Hmm. Yeah. You're the beloved of God. Believe that. Live into that. Um, Because I think for a lot of my life I've hated myself. Hmm. And there's been um, achievement. Achievement has been fueled not always from pure motive. Hmm. To prove myself. And there's a different way to live that I've... God has graciously brought into my life a sense that you are the beloved of God. Hmm. Um, I've talked about my first wife, um, and I have, a, I have a second wife. My wife died, and three years later I married Tammy. Tammy and Sharon have some commonalities, and that is that they both um, seem to walk in a sense of being beloved. Mm-hmm. And I've drawn on that a lot. Um, and I would say... That that's the one thing that if I could have uh, saved myself a lot of angst and anxiety would have been to live in the love of God, mm-hmm. live into it, the beloved of God. Yeah. This is a little leading, but or it's a lot leading, but I wonder if you could, along that theme, retell the story uh, about being at that rugby game. Oh, I didn't tell that one, did I? You told it to me another day oh another right. day. it's not too late it's not too late well, we could end there okay so quickly i 
I've just passed my viver for my second PhD in theology, and there are very few corrections, so I have a week off in Scotland to spend by myself. And my this is when I was married to my first wife. She was Scottish like myself, but she grew up in Scotland. Um, so the two things I do are I go to I go to watch a cricket match in Edinburgh because I love cricket. I grew up playing cricket, and I love rugby. I grew up playing rugby as well in in Zimbabwe. And um, I'm sitting at this standing actually at this game. There's no, there no seats. But you're standing in the borders of Scotland. And there are two clubs playing rugby. And in, in one of those clubs, two of the most famous rugby players of all time in Scottish history are having their final game. And I'm standing there, and the, the scenery around there is amazing. So is the smell of the cows. But anyways, <laughs> there's this beautiful scenery, and I'm standing there. And I'm just loving being in Scotland. And um, I, and one of the things that happens if you're a missionary kid and you've lived in different places, I've lived in I've lived in Angola, I've lived in Zambia, I've lived in Zimbabwe, I've lived in South Africa, I've lived in Canada, three different cities. Mm. What happens is you have a sort of instability and you always imagine that the place where you just left is the best place to live, right? It's hard to live with that kind of a person. And so I um, all of a sudden I'm saying to myself, I think I'm going to go home and tell Sharon that we need to move back to Scotland. This is where I really belong. I don't belong in Canada. I love Canada. I'm so grateful. But I, I, I want to come back to Scotland, find a church here. And uh, I could hear her voice in my head that says, you'll be going back on your own, son. <laughs> Which in Scottish means you'll be coming back on your own. I'm not going, I'm not going with you to Scotland. She loved Canada. There's no way she was going back to Scotland. So... All, and sort of in despair, I, I lift up my voice and in I, and my heart I said, where is my home? Mm. Where is my home? And that's one of the few times in my life God spoke to me very directly and he said, I am your home. Mm. I am your home. And tears began to stream down my face. Maybe it was the second time I cried as an adult. Um, and I was immersed in this sense that the Trinity, um, the Trinity and sanctification was what my thesis was about, that I was experiencing the Trinity at that moment. Mm-hmm. And it was a wonderful, a wonderful sense of this uh, shoring up my sense of lostness as a person and my sense of, of self-hatred and um, giving me a sense that I'm, I'm loved by God. God. God takes time to speak to me. And uh, mm-hmm. that was amazing. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that's... Thanks for sharing. Yeah, no worries. Ross, I'm so grateful for you, um, the time you spent with us today, but just the impact you've had on not just the Canadian church, but church leaders around the world in your writing, in your ministry. um, My life has been personally impacted. I know many others. So thank you so much um, for giving away your work in thoughtful ways like you have it's been it's a real blessing so thank you for being with us today thank you jason it's my pleasure and privilege blessed to be with you and share hear your hearts and to share my heart with you as well thank you thank you thanks ross for taking the time to invite us into parts of your story and for sharing on such an important topic If you would like to hear more from Ross or to read his most recent work, Pastoral Ethics, Moral Formation as Life in the Trinity, feel free to check out the links in the show notes to this episode. Now, I want to thank a few people who helped shape this conversation. Thank you to Josh Thompson for arranging and organizing the conversation, John Matson for your technical support, Jason and Chris for facilitating the conversation, and to Will Lee for producing the episode. If you've been around the CCLN world for some time, you'll know that all we want to do is serve pastors. We love pastors. It's a real joy of ours to serve you through this podcast and through our gatherings, learning communities, and other resources. And though we have incredible partner organizations who love pastors too, like the Canadian Bible Society, a lot of what we do at CCLN is only possible because of individuals like you and churches who have decided to partner with us in our mission to come alongside pastors. So we wanna invite you to be a part of our work to strengthen pastors in Canada. If you wanna give individually, you can do that at ccln.ca slash give. Or if you're a lead pastor, you can consider having your church join as a partner church. 
We love the idea of churches linking arms in order to serve other churches in Canada. Canada needs more than just one healthy church. We need thousands of healthy churches. So you can find out more about what it means to partner as a church at ccln.ca slash churchpartners. Thanks for considering all of this. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening in, and we hope that you'll tune in again soon, or we'll get to see you face to face. Bye for now.